is a great day. Be in the Lord. Do you guys have victory? Victory. We have victory. Victory over death even. And that's what uh, we're dealing with today. We are closing out the resurrection chapter. Lord willing here. We've been on this for many weeks. But I'll tell you what, it's one of the grandest things that we believe. And so it's certainly good to put some time in it. Um, Speaking of victory over death... One writer said there is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He's not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travels every part of the globe and speaks in every language. This preacher visits the poor, calls on the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion. And the subject of this preacher's sermons is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher could, and bringing tears to eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute, nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everybody fears him. This preacher's name is... Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And every day more people are part of his message. This preacher's name is death. Whoa. The inevitability of death. Just what you wanted to hear today. We want to hear more of Christ and not of death, right? It's an enemy. We fear it. We hide from it. We don't like to talk about it. I know. I know. We evade it. We try to avoid it. Any way we can get away from it, anybody starts to talk about it, we want to mask it and cover it up and make it look better. It devastates us. It breaks loving relationships. So Dennis, why are we talking about this? Well, here's what the world says about it. Sigmund Freud, one of the great spokesmen of the 1800s, right? And he still speaks today, unfortunately. Here's what he said about death. And finally, there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. Sigmund Freud. He does not have the truth. That's a shame. There he is. His stuff is still messing people up today. And there is one that will lead one to the wrong place. Um, He has no answer to this painful thing called death. It's an open wound. It is a sore. The wisdom of the world has really no answer to this riddle of death. The world looks to the answers through the philosophers, through the intellectuals of the age, the men of science, they look at that. But They can't get the truth for them. They think maybe it's the truth. They hope it's the truth. Maybe they're not sure it's the truth. Or maybe they can just say, there is no truth. But the thing is, is that we know that we all will die. Except as we go into this text today, there is a little bit um, difference to that. But we know. As Christians, if you're a Christian, you know that death has been swallowed up in victory. We know the Scripture says that. And we know that's the remedy. And we look forward to that great transformation. 
I mean, there's probably not anybody here, if you're Christian, that wouldn't mind if the Lord just came back right now. Right in the middle of all this and just take us on out. Right? Have a supernatural body and live with Him forever, right? Well, He knows, and, and we know. We know this. Because Paul, in this great text right here, of chapter 15, uh, the greatest text on the resurrection, answers the questions all the skeptics have that they had back during the time of Corinth, that they have today. Uh, he wraps all this up now in verses 50 through 58 as uh, his, this chapter in his letter uh, will be finally coming to, to a conclusion. So this is a high watermark. This re, uh, reaches its peak. It's just like a song that just keeps building up and building up and then it gets to the crescendo. gets to the major highlight. And that's where we're at. Paul, I believe at this time, was taken to a different level. Uh, as he was writing this and being inspired by God, he wraps this up, and I believe he is almost swept away by this tremendous thought God just gave him as he just makes this thing sing. This is a magnum opus of this great doctrine of the resurrection. And so as he brings us to a close, he wants to tell us of the supreme victory that we have for all those who are Jesus Christ. We belong to Him, right? We belong to Jesus Christ. We have that victory. So what we're going to do is gaze into this final part of a masterpiece. A masterpiece that has been written that's like a victory song. And we can just mock death all over the place. Verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot... Inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Well, you just want to call that a finish right there. <laughs> Paul just said it. What more can I say? But we'll try to uh, elaborate a little bit on certain terms, verses, phrases here that can maybe help us have a little more appreciation for uh, what God has done for us and given us this victory. Uh, we first of all start with the change in verses 50 through 53. It's Absolutely necessary that there be a change to get into the kingdom of heaven. We know that. God has designed bodies for this world as we know it right now. And they have been designed very well. Thank you. They are amazing, these bodies. 
how we use them. But they're not fit for heaven. They're fit for earth, but not made for heaven at all. We need special equipment when we get in to the very presence of God in a body, in the eternal state. Now that's what Paul starts off with in this section here. So he says, now this I say, brethren. I like that. I'm I'm addressing you as brethren. You remember all through Corinthians, as his letter has been addressing uh, major problems, whether it be their uh, boastfulness, uh, arrogance, uh, they were having different uh, almost denominations splitting off and they had sub, uh, the Lord's Supper they were mistreating and taking each other to court and had sexual problems. Ha! Huh, sounds like today. This is today. And the church is kind of like all a part of this. Now, that's what he's saying. Now he calls them brethren. After all that, he, you know, it seems like he's been hitting them hard and he says, brethren. And then later on, in verse 58, my beloved brethren, he says flesh and blood. And he's talking about our physical bodies here. Flesh and blood. Our bodies have blood in them. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Right? As we know in the law. So, um, we, we now use that. It's the, this physical body. And it's kind of like when you think of, um, there's a reason, uh, dealing with a caterpillar, for instance, that it doesn't fly right off the bat, does it? There is a metamorphosis or there's a change. There's a change to make. And so it goes through that transforming metamorphosis and it makes it into a butterfly. Start thinking of God's great creation. right? And so when we think of that, we think of this physical world that He has given us and man, it is a blessing. Even as much as sin has affected this world, and we know it, and we deal with weeds, we deal with heat and humidity, and it goes on and on. It's constantly reminding us. But at the same time, you still look at it and say, boy, it's beautiful. You see the green grass, green trees. And, not, and God is so much of a God of variety. Then He gives us colors, splashes of red here, and yellows and purples. You're starting to see some of that all around the city, right? Different flowers that people have. And you know, wow, this is just gorgeous what God does, you know? Even in a corrupt natural world that we have because of our sin, uh, is still a lot of good things we can see in that. But we're only fitted for this physical world. We are not meant for the eternal. We die. We have to die. A little seed goes into the ground. We mentioned that last week. Then there comes a great change where the force of resurrection works. It's this great power. and brings forth a different body. The same identity, we're the same person, but a much better body. Because we can't inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul says. That's now, the reason we can't do that because we live in a corruptible body. Do you know that? Your body is corruptible. Uh, anything corruptible cannot inherit something that is incorruptible. We understand that, right? Very simple. But to the Corinthians, to these people who are doubting this, they were really having problems with this. They couldn't understand. And he says, it's not that you're going to be in the same body. They couldn't buy that idea at all. And he says, no, no. It's a body kind of like what you have now, but much different. These things decay. We know that. Right? The human body is affected by disease. It's affected by death. Cannot inherit this incorruption. So we have to be made different. Um, I... 
Think of Philippians chapter 3, for instance. A great verse on this in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting for Him? I mean, that should move us to live this kind of life here on this earth. But we're eagerly waiting. Look at this though. Here's the promise. Who will transform... Aha! The transformers. We will be transformed... Our lowly body, it's lowly here, this earthly body, it's lowly, that it may be conformed to, look at this, His glorious body. These lowly bodies are going to be made in the image of Christ. Like His glorious body. According to what? To the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That's the kind of power that God is going to do to bring us into these transformation bodies. Then I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 23. All creation groans, right? Earnest expectation, that's the whole context. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. All creation. Well, you know, they they're struggling. They're struggling with all the heat and then the wind and and uh then the hot heat again and then they can turn cold and I mean it they're treated pretty harsh. All creation. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit Jesus Christ, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption now, we have been adopted into the body of Christ, but there is an adoption where we have our new bodies. The redemption of our body. So he explains the adoption there. The redemption. Redeeming of our body. You're going to cash in the old body and get a new one. Ah, what a deal. Can't pass that one down, can we? So we go back to our First Corinthians 15. And it says in verse 42... So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body that it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, whenever we come now to our text, as I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? What is it in this context? Well, the kingdom of God can be taken in different ways depending on what text you have. One uh, sense of the kingdom is that He is the King over all of creation, over everything, even right now. He's the King, right? And that's over everybody. So that, and that's a kingdom there. So that's one sense. That's a very general sense. Then there is the kingdom that is where um, it's the salvation realm. Where the ones who have been saved are in the kingdom of God now. We're already in that kingdom. Even though we don't see it, we don't feel it, we're in the kingdom spiritually. And sometimes it's the golden age as taken as um, the sense where Christ will be ruling and reigning on earth as it says uh, in much of the Old Testament. He will be ruling and reigning and we'll be reigning with Him. Right? That golden age. That kingdom age. 
And then there's another kind of kingdom that is the eternal state. And that's where everything has reached its culmination, where Christ has then, who ruled on earth, then comes and brings everything to God the Father, as it's already stated in 1 Corinthians 15, and everything is consumed up with that. And that's the eternal state that we will live in there. So the kingdom can take in all of those. But here we're talking about, um, we can think of the future reign that Christ uh, will have and, and, and God will have. And so we will take on those kind of bodies. There will be people going into that golden age that will be like us that will have uh, new bodies even during that time. Resurrection bodies. And the eternal state then. Now he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And there's that word. How many times do you see Paul use this? Does anybody know? A lot, right? The Greek word is mysterion. You just learned a Greek word there if uh, you have it on your sheets, I think you do. Uh, mysterion. Guess how we get our word mystery? That's not a mystery, is it? Um, but that word um, is used a lot by Paul. And the Corinthians are asking, okay, alright, okay, the dead, what happens if there are people alive and, and Christ comes back? Then? What's the deal there? If you haven't died, does that mean then you can't, you can't go up to be with the Lord at that time? Is that what you're saying, Paul? I mean, that's the way they'd be saying. What about we who are alive when the Lord Jesus comes back? Um, you have to die to get this new body. We haven't died. What's going to happen to us? What about the living people? And Paul gives them the, uh, the, the answer. He's going to unsolve a mystery. So the word mysterion in the Greek, as it appears in the New Testament, is something that was once not known, but is now known. Paul said, I'm going to tell you something you don't know about. And guess what? I just learned it too. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a secret that you're going to be able to know. And all the body of Christ can know this. Mysterion. It was hidden throughout the ages. There is the resurrection that's taught in the Old Testament. But it doesn't get down to the details that we have in the New Testament. And it doesn't really say anything about the ones who are living at that particular time when Christ comes back. Now, speaking of mysteries again, and I'll go on to elaborate on that in a moment. There are things that God does not reveal to anybody. The secret things are of the Lord's. Right? There are certain things that God has not told us, is not telling us now, and may not ever tell us ever. Then again, He might. He's told me plenty of things in here that I can't even remember. Now think about it. It's endless, the knowledge of God. How can we know everything about God? Well, it's going to take eternity, isn't it? He's going to keep revealing who He is. He'll never get boring. He doesn't get boring now, does He? What a God we have. So, there are certain things that He will not reveal today. even. But there are certain things that He reveals to His own people. Only believers can understand certain things. 1 Corinthians 2 has already told us about those kind of things. Uh, things that 
the great philosophers, the great thinkers of the world, the kings can't even understand unless they know Christ. Uh, just go back there. If, if you please, in a moment here, I'll show you. Look, verse 7 of chapter 2. Uh, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it was written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows Him. He comes, resides in us, and then He starts showing us revealing to us things we could never understand with our natural mind that has been defiled by sin. But yet we have a new man. We renew that mind and we start finding out things about God and His things for us that we would have never ever known. And hopefully every time we pick up this book we're learning more about God. Man, He is big, isn't He? He is truly awesome. Now he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. What about the ones who are not believers? Well, in verse 14 it says, But the natural man, that fleshly man, flesh and blood, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Why? Well, they're foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. It's just really small right now. But we have the mind of Christ. We can think like Him. We can understand. We can, we can reason these Scriptures. And finally, it's starting to make sense. Isn't it great? God does that. He does that. And the more you hang around in His Word and the teaching of His Word and such, the more that He will expose to you. Paul identifies that he's a preacher of the mysteries. Now, I think it's a tremendous privilege. Even the the Jewish people, even the leaders, even the godly people, the prophets and the priests, if they were godly of the Old Testament, they did not know Many of the things that we know today, and God held that back from them. But the curtain has now been opened. In these last days, He has revealed Jesus Christ. And now we can look at Him and see the fulfillment in that. There will be some, here's the mystery, who will not die. They will just change instantly. I mean, just like that. You can't even do it in the blink of an eye. That's how quickly you're going to change from this binder to that. Man, wouldn't it be great right within the next hour, half hour, ten minutes. Just like that. You'd be looking at this binder and the next thing you know, you're like that. Just that quick. And, and he'll explain that in a second. Um, those people uh, that are alive, if it's us, will not have to go through a death process. It's all right with me. But they will change. They will change. 
Verse 51, Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep. And that's the idea. Our bodies go to sleep. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord. What happens to the body? What goes in the grave? It corrupts, it rots, it decays. And you can say, well, okay, how can God get those bones and the flesh and everything back then? See, that's the way they were thinking. Hey, listen, God created the world. Created in the, in the sixth day, seventh day rest. If he can do that, if he can do you know do these little bitty cells that we have that are, are tremendous that we don't even know about, and make all the things out of the, out in the world, out in the universe, and all that, uh, he can do anything. Why couldn't he bring a body back? Well, that's what we talked about last week. And so, so the sleep idea is the body is sleeping. We're waiting for a new body as we're with the Lord. Uh, if we die. But some people are saying, hey, listen, I may not have to die. Well, great. That's all right. What a privilege. We may never have a funeral. Possible. May never have some kind of a, a tombstone. You may not ever have to have a coffin that they put your body in. They may never ever sing your favorite hymns around your grave. Because Jesus may come. could come. I may not die. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Paul is telling this to people that have never heard of this. It had to blow them away. This is what he's finishing up with. He says you may not have to die. But we know they did. I don't think there are any Corinthians around today, right? If they were, they wouldn't admit it. No. <laughs> they all died. But it sure would be the icing on the cake. But... If I die, well, everybody else has too, anyway. Uh, the dying of the seed until the new life comes forth. First Thessalonians is a great passage to correlate with this. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself, that's Jesus, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. It's going to be loud when He comes back. And with the trumpet of God... And the dead in Christ will rise first. And he explains here. Then we who are alive, it's, it's almost like Paul was expecting maybe this will happen in his lifetime. And that was okay. I think every generation has looked to that point that Christ could come back in my lifetime. Well, I can tell you one thing for sure. We are a lot closer than they were. <laughs> I can't tell you for sure it's going to be in my lifetime, but I sure like to think so. And I, I kind of live for that. I, I mean, you know, if I die, I die. Okay, that's, that's okay. But hey, this would be this would be a cool thing. Wow, you were one of those. She, she didn't even have to die. You just just changed. Didn't you? We are alive, remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. By the way, there's comfort here. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Is that great comfort? He's telling them, hey, listen, I know you have questions about this. And they were wondering, hey, is it, is it too late for us? Maybe Jesus has already come back. Or how about the ones who are dead? Uh, are they going to miss the rapture because they already died? Yeah, that's the kind of questions they had. And Paul says, no, no, no. The dead, matter of fact, are going to rise up first. They're going to go up with Him. And then we who are alive, who remain here, then we'll be caught up with them. That's the order that the Lord has. Uh, this is the rapture. The word caught up is um, 
the, uh, we have a Latin word that comes with that, rapio. I've explained this before, but it's how we get our English word rapture. A lot of people say, we don't believe in a rapture, do you? And they go, well, actually I do, because I, uh, but I'm using that, really the Latin base. But a lot of people don't like it because of all of the, the uh, I guess, the fiction books that have come out and everything, and people get all worked about, uh, worked about it. But yeah, I believe in a rapture. Well, if you don't, what hope do you have? What are you talking about? I've heard people say, I have to correct them and say, well, this is what it means here. Um, caught up. If you have trouble with the rapture word, that saying that, do you believe in being caught up? Well, of course I do. Well, good. Okay. If you want to speak Latin, then you're raptured. But the English now is there, and that's why we have that word today. So don't, uh, don't get too worked up about it. It's, it's okay. That word's okay. Um, there is, there's a Greek word for it, too. It means the same thing. To be caught up, to be snatched, to be taken away. That's the idea. You look, look forward to be taken away, to be snatched up. Now, um, look, in, we did the Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We, we shall all be changed. Okay, that's the changing. So who's going to be changed? Everybody in the world, right? Everybody who's alive and whoever who has, been di- uh, who has died. Uh, not in this sense. Uh, not in this kind of resurrection. This is the first resurrection, as Revelation speaks about. This is the resurrection of the ones who are in Christ, who are believers. What's the process? Well, it's not a process over a length of time, uh, like a metamorphosis when you think of a caterpillar and then turning into a butterfly. Uh, it's an instantaneous, radical change. It's a recreation in a moment. And I want you to try to focus on this word in a moment, in verse 52. In a moment. The word is atamos. And if you take the O-S after, uh, after those first four letters, what do you have? Atom. And that's how we get our English word, atom. So Greek is not so hard after all. Sometimes, is it? It defines it a little better. What is an atom? Well, it's something that they were amazed back a few decades ago. Just a few decades ago, they, could found, uh, they found out that they could split the atom. That means it was, it was so small before it couldn't be cut, couldn't be divided. That's as small as they could break down this particular item here. And finally when they did, you know, I mean, so they did, and so they, they were able to cut that and find out what's in the atom, right? It's the smallest time here that can be, as he speaks in a moment, this is the smallest that any time can possibly be. It cannot be cut, cannot be divided. It, it would be a fraction of a second. A second is 1,001. That's pretty quick if your body changed that quick, right? Well, you can say it's a split second. Well, let's divide it in half. One, and you're changed. Well, no, it's still quicker than that. We say it's like a twinkling of an eye. It says here in this text, so that means the blinking of an eye. No, it's quicker than that. It says the twinkling. And that's not a, a blink. It's as quick as light from the sun hitting the eye. I mean, as soon as, as soon as you step out from darkness into the light, how quick was that? Well, as soon as you stepped out into it. It was dark and then boom, it was light, wasn't it? It's, I've got the scientific term for it. It's like a, a nanosecond. You, you know, nano. I mean, that's pretty small, right? Okay, I want you to divide this down. A nanosecond. How long is that? How short is that? Well, this is a sixth of a nanosecond. Now, how far can we take this? Well, it's like light entering the iris to reach 
the retina, if we can explain that. It's, it's one millionth of a second. That's the idea. Or it's one thousandth of a microsecond. How about that? That's a little easier, isn't it? The twinkling is one-sixth of a nanosecond. Um, you're a, you're a, the twinkling of an eye, you know, when you, or you blink, that's a rapid movement. But the twinkling here is much faster than just a blink of an eye. It's the, the twinkling as the light hits it. Imagine the people in hospitals. People with broken legs, people with cancer, people who have suffered for years and years and they're, they're in places that they, they would love to be able to, to live a normal life and they can't. And all of a sudden, in a sixth of a nanosecond, they're changed. There they've been suffering with these bodies for that long. That would be an amazing thing. Terminal illnesses. Uh, this is a, a, a radical change. Transfer from misery, boom, from misery and pain to the perfect body that quickly. That's remarkable. When? When is this? <laughs> when? Man, I can't wait. When is this going to happen? Paul's going to tell us. At the last trumpet. Okay, when's that? <laughs> what, the last trumpet? <laughs> Just like it gets to that sixth of a nanosecond or whatever I can't really tell you what that really is I tell you that you know light hitting the eye but can you really understand that and the last trump well we saw in 1st Thessalonians 4 we just turned to there earlier right 1st Thessalonians 4 and 1st Corinthians 15 are really uh, great probably the two best chapters on uh, the rapture Christ coming back for us the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. There's a shout. Then the archangel has this voice. And then there's a trumpet of God that is blown. In First Corinthians 15, he talks about a trumpet. The last trumpet. Has there been any other trumpets blown yet? I don't know. Maybe there will be. But what was the idea of the Old Testament trumpets? It might help us a little bit or back at the time of Paul, well, they would use trumpets for a lot of different things, but it was to announce that uh, the soldiers get ready for battle. Uh, maybe festivities. It's going to be the feast that is going to come. Announcements. And also the end times. This is a signal for the dead to rise up out of the grave in a sixth of a nanosecond. The last trump was an expression that Paul understood. You have a Roman army, and the Roman army would be in camp, and the camp was about to be broken up, and they were going to move on to the next place, the next battle, next field. It might be in the middle of the night, it might be in the middle of the day, but there would be a trumpet blown, the trumpet would be sounded, and it usually sounded three times. So the third trump was called the last trump. The last trump. And that was a sign. No further order is needed. This is it. The orders have been given. The, tr- the last trumpet has been blown. That's it. Won't that be wonderful? That's it. We're going to march away. <laughs> Something quicker than marching, all right? But there's going to come a day 
it very soon. Last trouble sound, we'll march away, and it'll be one awesome parade. And it's going to be instantly as we go there. Look at Exodus chapter 19. There was a trumpet blown there, and this is where we are at a great mountain where the Ten Commandments were going to be given, and Moses was going to go up into that mountain. And this is at Mount Sinai. Everybody's heard of Mount Sinai. The Israelites were gathered around the mountain, and uh, they were going to meet the Lord. So, in this chapter 19 and verse 16, it says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning. By the way, do you really think that's the third day? We really need to spiritualize that and say, Well, that's really not a day. It's, it's, it's a few ages. You know what? I don't think anybody would do that. But I just want to tell you, they're doing it in Genesis like crazy lately. Those six days are really not six days. They were ages. But when you see this in the Hebrew, always take it as a day. Day is matched up with a number. That's what it means. That's really what it means. I'm going to be bold and say that. <laughs> came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud. said so all the people who were in the camp trembled. You know, you've heard those uh, trumpets that the Hebrews blew. That's what we're talking about. You know, we're thinking of a ram's horn. But this thing is coming out of this mountainous area that they're in, and it just blows all over the place. And it's loud. I'm sure some of them are covering their ears up. They're, they are trembling with everything that's happening. Thundering, lightning, this great big cloud, and this trumpet blows. They are getting ready to meet the Lord. Yeah, I think I'd be trembling too. The trumpet was blown. This is a summons trumpet to meet God. Look at Isaiah twenty-seven, thirteen. I think one would realize how holy God is if they were in that kind of presence. That's the fear of God that was established there. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. This is a future worship here of regathering Israel on this Mount Zion with other nations. They will worship God. Mount Zion, Jerusalem. They will come there. The trumpet there announces that. John 14.3 Everybody knows John 14, right? Jesus is telling the disciples that night before they're going to kill Him that He's going to leave. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. We're not going to each have our own little mansion. There is one tremendous, glorified mansion, palace, residing place that God has. And He's preparing us a fabulous, fantastic, awesome room that's going to be adjoined. That's all a part of this one household. We're all together. That's the idea 
of that. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And of course, what does Thomas say? Hey, hey, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know? How can we get there? That's where he gives that famous statement. I am the way. The truth. The life. No one comes to the Lord. No one comes to the Father but through me, through Jesus Christ. That means there's no other way. There are no other religions. We are very narrow in our belief. We do not allow other religions um, to say that they are the way to. Because Jesus just made a great statement here that He is the way. That's the only way we can get there. And He's the one who will radically change us as we meet Him. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, oh, that's the other Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. He was giving them a little bit more information the next time he wrote a letter. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. We're in a tent right now. What does a tent tell you? It doesn't last very long, does it? A tent is temporary. We have a tent. Okay? It's going to be destroyed. But we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. That's really what we want. That mortality, or mortals, may be swallowed up by life. Now, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Look at this. Look at this. Who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He guarantees it. He backs it up. And you know that because the Holy Spirit lives in you. He tells you that as you read His Word. You are assured that that will happen. He's prepared us for this very thing. The ultimate. We need a new body to clothe our spiritual being. Right? That's what Paul's saying there. One man said, you know, I really don't fear death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> I think we would probably all kind of say that, wouldn't we? We have normal attitude. You know, we're, I know we're Christians, but you know, there's reality all to this. And yeah, I like the idea of the rapture, but... You know, in the moment, uh, in the flash of a light, that's exactly what will happen to some. What, do you think it's far away? Well, it's nearer than it's ever been. Is that fair? Nearer than it's ever been. Now, part two. Can you believe that? Part two. Okay. First Corinthians 15. Where are we at? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Here's the corruptible and the mortal. There are two groups here. You have the corruptible, and that's the group that we've just been talking about. The corruptible will be the ones that have already died. They are the corruptible. Well, who are the mortal ones? Well, that would be the ones who are alive that will die or be changed, right? They're the ones who are living now. So whenever he, whenever he splits this up in 54, when the corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, he's saying the same thing, but there's two groups. One are the dead people and the ones who are alive. The mortal is going to put on immortality. Romans 8, 10, and 11. What, what's happening? The body is dead, though. Our, our body is really dying, isn't it? Look at Romans 8, 10, and 11. Our body is dying. Yeah. I heard all that. That's pretty good. And if Christ is in you, if He's in you, the body is dead because of sin. Your body is dead. I mean, it's just as good as dead. I mean, it, there's nothing in it of eternal value. The body, so that's why Paul would be saying, hey, you, you have Christ in you. You're alive there. But the body is dead. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There we go. He explains Himself right here in Romans. Same thing. There's the mortal ones. The, ones who are still alive. the body's still dead. If you're a believer, Christ's Spirit's inside. body's still dying. The body's under the fallen nature. It's under that. We're dying even though we're saved. We're dying even though we're living. We don't get a new body immediately. That's the truth of the matter. Wouldn't it have been great we turned to Christian and then as soon as that came we've got glorified bodies, sins done, everything's great? Wouldn't it be something? That would be a plan, wouldn't it? Evidently, it's not good enough of a plan. God has a better plan. And so that's why we're here today. We just have to wait. This is the conquest that we're speaking of, right? Now, here is where the crescendo has gotten bigger and bigger. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now Paul, who has been giving all of this great teaching, and he's been inspired by God's Spirit, now he quotes a Scripture. He says, oh yeah, there's a passage somewhere. It's out of Hosea 13.14. He doesn't tell us that though. He just says, death is swallowed up in victory. You go to Hosea 13.14 and guess what? Death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up means destruction. The grave has swallowed up its victims. The coming of the Lord Jesus and the changing of our natural, vile bodies, lowly, into the very likeness of His glorious resurrection body. It's like that. It doesn't halt the death process there at all. It doesn't just stop its effect as far as our lives are concerned. It effectually goes back, all the way back, and robs from death all of its other previous victories that it's had. Go back. All the knots are going to be untied. 
All those lives of our families, all that's going to be untied. Jesus is going to go back through it all. He's going to restore everything to His wonderful redemption glory. Absolute glory. When the resurrection has taken place, death is going to be conquered. And you know what? We can taunt it. I like those football players. Sometimes they get out there, you know, and they they knock the quarterback down, and they'll do a little dance, and you know, do some kind of a taunting around about him. You ever seen some of those things? It's ridiculous. It's it's pretty bad, bad sportsmanship. But that's what they do these days. You know, it even happens in baseball, and you know, they'll, they'll taunt the uh, the guy that is just you've just beaten. Into the game, they can taunt him and make fun of him. Referees don't usually always allow that, but. At the same time, we can taunt death. Where's your sting? Where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul says. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Huh? Where's your sting? Where's your sting? The stinger of a bee is very sharp. It's, a, it's an organ, actually, that they have. And it's connected with a poison gland. All right? So when a bee stings, what it does, it leaves that organ in you. They're a wasp and such. and That stinger actually um, is put in, in the victim. There's been a sting anyway. I'm led to believe that, uh, at least I know about wasps, if they, if they sting once, that's really it for them. Or I have to wonder what happens to the bees. Well, if, if it leaves its stinger and the, the stinger is now gone, it's lost its ability to sting and it's not effective anymore you take a stinger away from a bee and what is it it's flying around it can't do anything you know it might be able to go into those flowers take that sweet stuff out of there you know boy you know that's really it's kind of mean though you know you're around trying to pull weeds out or do something and there's these bees flying around you and they don't like you being around and they you know they go by and give you a couple of three warnings and then they blow that trumpet on you and that's it oh death where's your sting can we answer that question where's your sting death do you know what death would have to say death would have to say this my sting was put into Christ at Calvary and because it's in him it'll never be in you We are new people. We've already been born again. We are new creatures. There's no more death for us. These bodies are going to die, maybe. The sting of death. Well, what's the deal? The power of sin is the law. Because you know what the law does? It shows our sin. The law is a good thing, but it can't save you. All it does is point at you and shows you how evil and wicked you are. And the more you look at it, the more evil and wicked you are. I'm a coveter, Paul said. He discovered that. Didn't know that before. He was the most righteous man that lived at that time as far as he was concerned. He had everything to boast about. And then he saw his righteousness was nothing. The law condemns us. But when we, when we know that the power of the sin is the law. Verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And we realize the weapon against us 
is sin. And sin is already beaten at the cross. It was beaten in Christ. The law reveals we're sinners. The law sets forth a tremendous demand that nobody has been able to meet except that perfect sacrifice, Christ. He satisfied the Father and He said, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with that sacrifice because nobody else can do it. He lived a perfect life, did the death, satisfied the Father. None of us could ever be sinless and that's what God demands. So therefore, we have the great exchange. And we have His righteousness that has now been applied to us, imputed, if you may, counted righteous, a banking term, the figures were moved over to us. And He took our sin, put it on Him. It was done. That's why sin is done. It will never be held against you again. Now, does that mean we won't sin again? No, we still sin. But remember, it will never be against us. The sting of sin is eternally dead. If one's a Christian, death, I want you to catch this, actually is a friend. Did you catch that? God uses it. Precious in the sight of God is the death of His children. Now, you know what Paul ends with? Well, well we got we got to close. You know, it's 53 minutes though. I'm not doing bad. <laughs> I'm under an hour. Okay. We're not there yet. You guys know me. After 26 years, you know that, don't you, Penny? <laughs> Debbie. <laughs> this is about the time of year that we started 26 years ago. I'll never forget that because that's, that's all God's work. It's not anymore. But thanks be to God. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God. What else could you say after you've been reading all this? We're taunting death and everything and we find out <laughs> it's not that big of a deal here. Man, God has already conquered that. Thanks be to God. We stand before the King of the universe clothed in Christ's righteousness. And by the way, that's really what we're going to be dealing with tomorrow night barring some kind of air conditioning problems. <laughs> uh, it's in Ephesians 6, and it's really about um, the breastplate of righteousness. And that's why we can win. Win our battles. Breastplate of righteousness. We stand before this King because we are declared righteous. Still sin, but we're declared righteous. He's been satisfied. We need a sinless Savior. We need a Savior. We have to have a Savior. We can't stand before Him without Him. Why? I'd be scared to death if I had to stand in His presence without the person of Christ. The victor. He is the victor. I have a lot of verses to look up, but that's your homework for the day. I'm not done yet, though. I want you to look at Revelation 20. Verse 14. We have another verse. Okay, ready? Verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We're not there. We don't have a second death. Our bodies die once. We are born again. Anyone not found in the written book of life is cast in the lake of fire. Everybody at that great white throne judgment is going to be cast in the lake of fire. There's the judgment. 
chapter 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These are believers. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There you go. All things made new. You know what? As far as Christians are concerned, what about death? Well, it's kind of like it's been declawed. It's been defanged. Take away the teeth of a a killer dog. Little bitty guy. (laughs) What can he do, right? Take the claws off the cats. I've seen cats that have been declawed and they can't, can't do anything. That's what's happened to death. It's still there. We know that. But it's really not going to do anything. Our spiritual man's going to go right to be of the Lord. Well, let's do this. Let's finish with verse 58. And we're going to be done with this chapter. After a long piece of doctrine, like in Romans 11 chapters, you get doctrine. And then in chapter 12, what does he do? Now, therefore, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you get great doctrine on what God has done for us, where He's positioned us and placed us. And He says, therefore, do this. In Corinthians, you know one of the greatest truths. You know about the resurrection. Wow, we've been studying it for weeks, right? You've heard it for years. After that, He says this, now. Here's what you do with it. Just to have great doctrine is not good enough. It doesn't make it. It has to be put into the walk. What good is a resurrection of that? What you believe is going to make a difference in how you live. If you really look at this resurrection in the way that Paul looked at it, in the way we've been looking at it, then it should tell you that, hey, I'm going to live my life accordingly because this is incredible. There is nobody that has this kind of thing to offer. This must be the truth. I'm going to examine it. If it's not the truth, I don't want it. But if it's the truth, uh, there are no other options. I better pay attention. I believe the resurrection. Okay. Therefore, my beloved brethren, these nasty sinners in Corinth, and they're called what? Beloved brethren. We all are. If you're a Christian, we're in the fellowship of God. It's sweet. Beloved brethren. Here we go. This is easy to outline. Be steadfast. Right? Alistair Begg called this the the so what. You've had all this doctrine. Okay, so what? Big deal. Okay, you got a great big God. So what? And you finish it off. Okay. Because of this, you be steadfast. Because God will hold nothing against us and we're going to get glorified bodies and we should be joyous and we want to live lives right now worthy of our calling. The Corinthians were wavering. They were staggering. They had doubts about this resurrection. And Paul says, be steadfast. I mean, don't move. Don't move. Hedraos. It means to be settled. To be firmly convicted. You know what I compare it to Ephesians 6 where it says, put on the belt of truth. You guys remember the belt of truth? We did that last week in Ephesians 6. The belt of truth. Being committed to the truth. To the faith. To the whole counsel of God. Be steadfast. 
Don't let anybody come along and bring in some kind of false doctrine, whether it be something about the resurrection or whatever. Ephesians says they're tossed about to and fro by every wind and doctrine. They're moving, you know, the waves move them all over the place. Just being crashed up against the shore and knocked off. And he says, be steadfast. Be settled. Be firmly, firmly situated to the truth. Be convicted by it. Be firm in your doctrine. Don't be tossed about. Next one is just one that just multiplies it even more. Immovable. Uh, the word here means motionless. It amplifies what steadfast is. He says, I want you to be so steadfast that you have no emotions. Don't be moved away from God's will. Standing absolutely firm. Don't be bouncing around out there. And then he says, abounding. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding is like overflowing. It means to overdo something to do something that is completely over and above. You know Jesus did that? He did that for us? God has abounded in the great grace that He's given us. I mean more than enough, right? He has certainly overflowed. He's gone over the top. You heard that expression? God has gone over the top for us. So we should abound also. We have a tendency not to do that. We have a tendency not to serve the Lord. I'm tired. I I just would rather sit. I don't want to deal with anybody right now. We have a tendency to not do a lot of work or service. We have a tendency to just to sit on our dust and not really do anything in the Lord. Because I have worked hard today and I can't I just don't want to do that anymore. I've done that, I paid my dues. Baloney. We have you know what? We have to, we battle this. We really do. Are we really serving the Lord? Are we serving others in this church? We should abound in doing the work of the Lord. We really should. This is a good work for those who a word for those who work and pray and give witness and live and sometimes suffer. Just just keep doing it. If you're doing that, just keep doing it. Abound in that. Look what the Lord did. If you're not doing it, then start doing it. Serve the Lord. You know what Jim Elliott said? He wanted to be a flame that burned out for God. You know what? He did. He was killed. He was a martyr for the faith. He was the one who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Can I say that again? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's why God said, well, I'll take your life and give you the glory of a martyr in heaven. Such for Jim Elliot. What about Epaphroditus in the New Testament? Don't hear too much about him, but we know that he uh, suffered at the, to the point of death. He was a brother, a companion, a laborer, and a fellow soldier. And Paul said to him that he was near unto death for the work of Christ. Wow. <laughs> He was working to death for the Lord Jesus. How many are like that? We have so many other things happening today. So many things to take our attention. Well, end on a high note here. Here we go. End of 58. Knowing, you know this, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As you're living this Christian life, it's not empty. It's not vain. Don't give up. There's a reward 
that the Lord is going to give you. He's already given us eternal life, but there's a reward. Whatever your service is, it's worth it. I don't care what it is. It's not a waste. Your labor is not in vain. It's not a waste in the Lord. He knows. And there's something even better as we look forward to. One last passage, we're done. Revelation 22.12. Catch this. Boy, what a high note to end on. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. Whatever you work you have done in the Lord legitimately, that he, he is going to reward you. And we say, Amen. It's not in vain. Everything that we live for, all this doctrine that we've heard, folks, it should move us to live for the Lord's glory in everything. Thank you for paying such attention. What a great chapter that is. And we will continue on with chapter 16, Lord willing, next week, unless He comes back. Let's pray.